Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the Director of Operations for SALT, which is a global thought leadership and networking forum. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And today, we're very excited to welcome Ben Nelson to SALT Talks. Ben started Minerva in 2011 with the goal of nurturing critical wisdom for the sake of the world through a systematic and evidence-based approach to learning. Over the past decade, he has built Minerva University into the most selective and effective university in the U.S. and has developed a business, the Minerva Project, to share Minerva's unique approach with other like-minded institutions. Prior to Minerva, Ben spent more than 10 years at Snapfish, where he helped build the company from startup to the world's largest personal publishing service. Ben's passion for reforming education was first sparked at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, where he received a BS in economics. After creating a blueprint for curricular reform in his first year, the principles from which he drew to frame Minerva, Ben went on to become the chair of the Student Committee on Undergraduate Education, a pedagogical think tank that is the oldest and only non-elected student government body at the University of Pennsylvania. Hosting today's SALT Talk is Dr. Dina Radinkovic, co-founder and chief executive officer of Game2, a new breed of biotechnology and female reproductive longevity with the mission to solve the problem of accelerated ovarian aging and change the trajectory of women's health and equality. Game2 has recently raised $23 million to develop an ovarian therapeutics platform with sequenced programs, fertility, and ovarian diseases. Dina is also a partner at the SALT Bio Fund. She is an academic medical doctor by background and healthcare entrepreneur. And now I'll turn it over to Dr. Dina for the interview. Thank you so much, Joe. And thank you, Ben, for um, joining me for the Cell Talks today. It's a great pleasure. I know when I met you, I was very impressed by your mission, the impact of what you're achieving. And I think it's one of the most important things um, that we can do to invest in a better future. And it's often... Um, neglected and not as discussed. Um, so firstly, I appreciate you taking the time and appreciate everything you're doing in the world. What and a pleasure. We can Thanks discuss, for having me. <laughs> and, and we can discuss later um, the details and how we want to, to support you going forward. I guess um, the first question here, because normally we start these salt talks kind of when people start with their background and their previous job and a previous career, and with you, it's obviously Snapfish. So perhaps uh, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about how has you know your role in Snapfish and everyone else uh, shaped you so that you, you do what you do right now at Minerva, truly um, changing education for everyone. Yeah, I'm happy to. A lot of people don't really understand. Well, how does running an online photo service uh, lead to starting the world's uh, most effective university? Uh, and, and they don't really see the connection. But, but the reality was that Snapfish was a, a really amazing uh, eye-opener for me. Uh, I, I'd started working in the commercial internet back in 1995 while I was still in uh, as an undergraduate uh, before Amazon was even live. Uh, and I was introduced to this world of e-commerce through CD Now, which was one of the clients I consulted with. And, and saw over the years how technology can really provide transformational opportunities for, uh, for uh, different sectors. And when I joined Snapfish years later uh, in, in 1999, uh, 
what we were trying to do was harness this transition from film to digital photography. But the real lesson that I got was that Snapfish was at the time focused on the mainstream customer, right? Which was uh, the mother uh, of the family. Uh, she was effectively the photo taker. But at the time, the uh, the world of digital photography was a purview of tech geeks. So it wasn't, so people weren't actually thinking about the ultimate consumer of the market. They were thinking about a very particular segment. And because we had a very popular view of, uh, or a view of how to get to the popular majority eventually, we effectively could ride and, and create that wave as it was uh, cresting. And, uh, and the real uh, power of that was that we had years of interacting with a lot of customers to hone what we were doing. And that cycle of getting better and better and better at serving the needs of the core customer eventually led a bunch of incumbents, retailers, to come to us and say, you know, we have our own websites to, you know, for our own customers and no one's using it, right? Can we just do what you're doing? Can you just build it for us? And so when I, uh, just as I was taking over as CEO at the time, I was the CFO before then, we just entered into our first couple of enterprise relationships. And I'll never forget the first one that we lit up. It was with Costco. And Costco had a, a functioning website that connected to 60 of its stores. You can upload a photo, you can print in an hour, you could get a photo book and all the rest. And very few people were using it. And we shut the site down on a Tuesday night and we brought up our site on a Wednesday after months of building it. It was very, very complicated back then. And no email, no message, nothing. Just the natural traffic that would normally come to the site, volumes of orders went up by 10x Wednesday versus Tuesday, um, which is unprecedented. And then we increased volume by three more orders of magnitude over the next three years. And it was just because we knew how to serve the customer needs. And so when you think about it from that perspective, the Minerva model is pretty much the same. Build the absolute best university on the planet, hands down, have better than Ivy League outcomes despite serving a very diverse socioeconomic or socioeconomically diverse student body. And then when you demonstrate that, enable the incumbents that say, wait a second, we also want to do right by our students to take that core intellectual property and reform how it is that they approach their learning. And that, that was the, the same model that, that I approached with Minerva. Fascinating. Okay. So really develop the best product that people who you're serving needs. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about Minerva. So a lot of people know about it, but we have international audience. So um, how does it compare to Ivy League schools? Why should people apply for it? Why not go for some of the top schools like um, before? What has changed? Um, so why don't we start with that? And I have a lot of uh, questions to ask about the details of the university and I guess the recent changes in education and how they've impacted uh, Minerva as a potentially a winner in this space. Yeah, so the, the easiest way I can I can convey that is to actually appeal for you to think about university education not 
as a parent or somebody making a choice for your child, but as an employer, right? Okay. Because when you're an employer, you interview people um, all the time and think about how many times you've seen a resume and said, oh, here's a Harvard or Stanford graduate. I'm just going to send them an email saying they're hired. Um, I don't think that that's never happened in my career. It's never happened in anybody else I know in career. Um, at best, you look at them and you say, oh, you went to a highly selective school. Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're a bozo and mommy and daddy bought your way in um, because we all went to these institutions and we all went to school with a bunch of bozos. <laughs> and so it's not like we are in any way um, uh, 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 unclear about the value proposition of these institutions. Right. And we know that when it actually comes down to deciding who it is that I'm going to hire to join an executive team, to be a regular line employee, it doesn't matter. What do we try to do? We try to ascertain how well do you think? How can you process information? Can you solve problems? What background do you have? Can you context switch? Um, do you have the ability to actually apply good learning in radically different uh, contexts and perspectives? Right? Can you collaborate and work well with other people? And we also know the universities don't teach any of those things. And so, so from an employer perspective, we kind of know that the value add of those institutions is quite low from the areas that we care about. Now, having said that, and certainly when I was starting Minerva, a lot of people said, well, because we know that universities don't teach those things, we just assume that they can't be taught, right? We assume that the only way to learn those things is to go out and work for a few years. Well, if that were true, then anybody who would be out there and working for four years would have these skills. Lo and behold, most people don't. And the reality is, is that you can actually recenter education, not on the short-term certification of information recall, but actually on long-term broad application of the kinds of cognitive tools that make you successful. Minerva is the only university in the world that has been able to prove that we can teach that way. And, and ultimately, the reason that students turn down Ivy League offers and offers from Oxbridge and all the best universities in the world to come to Minerva, the reason that we have a 1% acceptance rate, yet twice as many students that we accept decide to actually take that offer versus go to all of the other uh, great institutions in the world is because we are unique in the kinds of outcomes that we generate. And, and that is because we've reimagined the entire experience around Minerva. What is taught? Centering these cognitive tools and then using subject matter or majors and electives as ways to reinforce and how to apply those things. We've changed the pedagogical methodology where all of our classes are small and hands-on. They're fully active learning. They are actually ensure that the students deeply process what they learn so they retain it, right? And because of the curricular structure that they then can apply it in different contexts and we restructured where we learn. So rather than taking the students and sequestering them on a campus with all of the costs that are involved with that, we have them live as a cohort and travel across seven different countries during their four years. 
and applying what they've learned from culture to culture to culture and seeing how the world is actually heterogeneous in its approach. And that the same solution that may work in San Francisco is probably not going to work in Seoul or in Hyderabad. Wow. Fascinating. So a couple of questions. I know you offer the undergraduate and the graduate program. Could you tell us a little bit more about what subjects uh, are covered within these? Like what can students interested in different areas from STEM to and, um, tech or engineering? Yes, it started in SF to arts, um, get skills at from, from the university. And then the other thing is perhaps, I mean, you, you teach them skills. Do you teach them things like how to do compound interests or how to understand computational mathematics. Cause I was a huge fan of the book by Stephen Wolfram actually, which he wrote once he was dissatisfied with the standard mathematics curriculum. Um, it was during like K-12 and that was actually in the, in the UK where they have a different program, but we're talking for high school, elementary school education, where he said that, you know, we're teaching arithmetics that can be replaced by calculators. But, you know, we, we people come out of school, they come even out of college and they don't know how to calculate their mortgage. Right. Uh, that being said, I think, you know, we have all have now have a need to be basic data scientists, because if you turn on the TV, the only thing that we have are represented with p-values. And the whole <laughs> idea of misinformation is actually because you could represent the same data in a different way with a different meaning. So this idea of critical appraisal and knowing how to analyze data uh, without necessarily knowing how to calculate, right? Like we all have our, our phones and our supercomputers. So um, are you doing anything of that? And when it comes to actual critical thinking rather than, you know, standard view, how we how we would teach mathematics and science and what 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 are the fields that students can major at, at Minerva? Of who can apply? Um, how, how does their day look like? You mentioned it's seven countries. Uh, that's exactly right. So we actually take it a step further. So rather than saying, okay, let's teach you how to calculate a mortgage, we go through all of the component parts that you need to be able to master on different systems of thinking. So we don't teach a way of thinking. We teach multiple ways of thinking that you can apply depending on whatever situation you encounter. And, and broadly, there are four systems of thought that govern our day-to-day -day world, right? One is formal systems. That's the algorithmic world, right? That's where you can understand data visualization, statistics, logic, reasoning, the algorithmic way of looking at the world and being able to make sense of it. Then there are the empirical systems, and that's being able to look at evidence as it is presented, oftentimes ill-structured evidence, and being able to tell the difference between a fact and a claim, create a hypothesis and actually test whether or not it's, it gets, could potentially be a creative solution to a problem or not. Uh, being able to look at data and understand what part is relevant and what part is not, et cetera. Then there's the world we actually live in, which is a world of complex systems. Right? That's a world of unintended consequences, second and third order effects, emergent properties, interactions. And the is really the biggest missing piece to the educational sector overall. You may get elements of formal thinking, you may get elements of empirical thinking, even though you don't get it broadly, you get it subject specific and therefore non-transferable. But very few people understand the complexity and the laws governing complex systems that are so important 
that, uh, in dealing with anything from biological organisms like our bodies, all the way to markets and political systems. And then the last layer are rhetorical systems. The way that we abstract those three layers of reality and explain and communicate to one another. And those are rhetorical systems matter between or, or get judged between how you express yourself and what kind of impact you have as opposed to the intent that you may have as you deliver that, understanding context, understanding uh, the the conditions and constraints in which you have to uh, uh, to talk uh, and and explain and collaborate in in various ways, and so the component parts of each of those systems are actually the core subject area that we teach, and we contextualize them as students navigate their majors or minors, and they can major in all sorts of things. So at Minerva, for example, there's a cluster of majors around computational science, a cluster of majors around natural science, a cluster of majors around social sciences, arts and humanities, business. But the way that we approach them is all interdisciplinary, right? So for example, rather than teaching physics or biology or chemistry, we will teach students around the world of atoms and molecules, or cells and organisms, or planetary systems. And guess what? Physics and biology and chemistry play varying degrees of roles in each one of those. And being able to understand how it creates an application layer is really important. Right? And so these are examples of the ways that we approach things, very systematic in thinking, very practical, and because of that, yielding the extraordinary outcomes that, that our graduates have. Absolutely. I always thought that it's about the thinking and cross-hybridization of different disciplines. But let's say on the current job markets, what are the what are the common paths after Minerva? Like if people are, you know, um, now are learning about this and saying, oh, maybe I should just go back to college or I'm just applying and thinking what to do. Um, or I have a cousin who's thinking about this. I'm going to send them to look up Minerva. And this seems amazing, even though the acceptance rate is low, but we can discuss how we could potentially yeah. change that. Um, so what, what, what is kind of the career, uh, what are the career prospects after Minerva? What have you, what have you seen so far? Are there any, um, common things that you're seeing in terms of what you're, the students that you're, you're attract or are choosing to do after? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the best part, you know, when I went to Wharton as an undergraduate, um, you could go into basically one of two careers. You could be a consultant or you could be a banker. Um, yeah. Uh, now you could be a consultant, be a banker, or go work for Facebook or Google, right? <laughs> like now there's a third option. There's like a third I job. Some of them um, kind of join some companies. They're, yeah. We're diversifying, maybe like yeah. a starting, okay. starting. The beauty of Minerva graduates is that they pursue a huge array of interests, despite the fact that there's a relatively small class. And so there are people starting their own companies. There are people who are joining big corporations. There are ones that are joining technology firms, nonprofits, uh, uh, people going to graduate school of all sorts and stripes. But the beauty of it is that they start at a higher level, right? So as an example, in our first class, we graduated 106 students and they graduated two and a half years ago. And of those 106 students, we had uh, four students that uh, together formed three different companies that wanted to apply to Y Combinator. Every single one of those applications was accepted, 
right? As you may or may not know, Y Combinator accepts about 1% of its applicants. We were 100% hit rate. Um, we had four other students that were applying for postgraduate positions at Harvard. All four of them were accepted. Um, we had uh, six students who were interested in doing finance. Not a single one of them went to work for an investment bank. They weren't to work directly for hedge funds or venture capital firms. Um, and uh, not to mention now, more recently, people are getting into the crypto world, right? And and the the and you can go just on and on and on, and and demonstrate between graduate school placements, jobs, people who are already thirty under thirty on Forbes, uh, the uh, leading delegations to uh, uh, the COP uh, twenty six in Edinburgh. Uh, one decided to be a cesarean monk in Switzerland, even though he's uh, uh, he's Vietnamese and, uh, and and grew up there, and and that's really the beauty of it, because these students overwhelmingly come from disadvantaged economic backgrounds. So to give you some some perspective, the modal student at uh, at the Ivy League is a millionaire. Fifty three percent of students at Stanford, fifty three percent of students in typical Ivy League university don't qualify for financial aid from those institutions. The modal student at Minerva comes from a family making less than $25,000 a year. 60% of our students come from families making less than $50,000 a year, right? And so to have these kinds of outcomes with this type of student population is unheard of. It's unheard of to have these kinds of outcomes with a student population that comes from wealth and privilege, let alone uh, those who uh, who can demonstrate that kind of four-year social mobility um, that, that we've been able to generate. Um, and that continues class after class. It also, by the way, um, is, is true for anybody, anybody who wants to go back to school. We also have a master's program. So there's a master's in decision analysis. And this is actually meant towards executives or people who are already in, in senior positions in, um, uh, in companies or government or other walks of life that are interested in having that systematic thinking, understanding formal, empirical, complex systems, uh, and applying them to their day-to-day. And that program, unlike the undergraduate program, which is residential and global, this program is actually part-time and remote. So you don't have to quit your job in order to uh, be able to participate in it. And Ben, I mean, you've touched upon something that actually was one of the main reasons why I was so incredibly excited about what you do. Um, and the impact. And I always talk uh, very proudly about, you know, my humble beginnings being born in um, in South Serbia and, uh, you know, still managing to, to get here and still have big ambitions. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about, you mentioned where your students come from, what's the financial model? Like, how do you sustain that? Um, we always read about endowments of universities, the profits they make with fees. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit how, I mean, do your students pay fees? Um, how is that structured? What is your business model? I mean, you're, you're a startup as well. Like, uh, you know, how, how are you pitching to your investors? Uh, Salt is, ha, has a lot of accredited investors on a network. We're, we're now all curious. How do you make to do so much good and make this a business model? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, Minerva is unique in that approach. Uh, we we innovated a, a very different approach to a business model when we started ten years ago. The university is a nonprofit, um, and it was 
always built as a nonprofit. It was designed to do good in the world. And uh, our uh, perspective on admissions is a very humanistic perspective. So we have a uh, what we refer to as the bar. It's a admission criteria that is set every summer. And in order to get into Minerva, you have to pass the bar. If you pass the bar, you're in. If you're below the bar, you're out. And there are no exceptions in either direction. So it's not a, uh, a process where you say, well, you know, you don't really pass the bar, but boy, you've got money. So let's, you know, let's put you in or to say, boy, you passed the bar, but you can't afford it. We're not going to uh, we're not going to bring you in. And because of that, and because there are no criteria that are not about the inherent talent of of the um, of the applicant. So we don't care about gender, race, uh, religion, country of origin, et cetera. The nature of the student body at Minerva is wildly diverse uh, because talent is broadly distributed around the world. So we talked about the, soci- the economic diversity, but almost 90% of the students, 87, 88% of the students are from outside the United States. Um, they come from all over the world. There isn't a single other country that's even 10% of the student body. So it's not like, you know, you have some giant swath from one country or another. It's actually broadly distributed. Um, Among the 600 undergraduates that we have across the four years, they come from 80 different countries. And again, you don't get an advantage from being from a country that we don't have before. It's not like you say, oh, you know, we don't have any Serbian students so the next Serbian applicant, we'll treat them differently. We treat everybody exactly the same. And we do have Serbian students. Uh, and so uh, there's all sorts of, uh, of, of talent that is in every corner of the world. And that's a, a huge factor for us uh, to be able to do that. Now, the university itself only costs $30,000 a year, tuition fees, room and board, the whole thing. That doesn't even, that's not even the cost to the institution. Some of it is just the cost of being alive, like buying food, uh, because we don't offer cafeterias. You actually have to buy and cook your own food and all the rest. So that includes a budget for that. Um, but 80% of our students, more than 80% of our students can't afford it. So we have to, as a nonprofit, raise a substantial amount of money every year not to uh, underpin the operations of the institution, which is uh, operated very, very um, modestly, but really to fund scholarships, right? Which is the primary thrust of of what we raise money for. Now, the university was started by the Minerva Project, which is, as you said, it's a Silicon Valley startup. Um, And it's a little bit odd for a Silicon Valley startup's business plan to be step one, build a charity, step two, start a business. But that's effectively what we did because we knew that if we were to go to traditional universities, high schools, any kind of educational institutions and say to them, hey, you know, all of the employers that are really upset at the quality of your graduates or, uh, or you know how students keep saying they didn't learn anything when they were in school and all of the press that you get and all the, the, the bad things that are associated with it, even among the elites, don't you think you should change that? Don't you think you should look at the science of learning and actually adopt what's proven to work versus what's proven not to work, which is largely what you do? No one take us seriously. Um, in fact, there have been people who've tried to do this for decades haven't made any change in universities. But if we were to go to other institutions, in fact, if they were to come to us and say, huh, you're the people who built 
the best university in the world. Can you do that for us? That's a very different conversation. That's a conversation that actually enables universities to have agency, that have a model that they can follow that is sustainable. Think about what is it now that universities try to do to become better institutions? Who do they follow? They follow Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge, right? How do you take 400 years of operations and $40 billion and win at that game? It doesn't work, right? Because you could go and raise $30 billion and what are you going to do? You're going to convince the Harvard faculty to leave and come to your university? Why? Their life, they're happy at, at Harvard. They have the, uh, they have the nice uh, uh, branding and the office and their commute and their community, right? They don't want to upend them. So they'll take, it, it's, it's not a realistic thing. And by the way, the only way to actually climb that ranking is to do better research. That's, that has nothing to do with education. It has to do with the quality of research a university produces. But now you have a recognized leader brand leader among the uh, other institutions that generated its eliteness, that generated its you know, prestige based right. on student outcomes. And so all of a sudden, if you're a university that says, wait a second, I wanna do, uh, I wanna increase my, my brand. I wanna get uh, expansion. I wanna serve students better. I wanna serve society better. Rather than spending billions of dollars and doing things that are actually antithetical to educational equality. Instead, I can actually save money or invest a very small amount of money and leapfrog the Harvards and Stanfords of the world. And, and that message is actually the, the core business of the Minerva Project, which, you know, after we spun out the university and, and could focus on actually building that business over the last couple of years, has really taken off. And so the university in the short run, raises money philanthropically because it needs that, uh, uh, that, that money for, uh, uh, for students. But in the long run, it actually has an endowment because it owns 10% of the corporation. And as the corporation spreads the, that reform movement all over the world, eventually that uh, endowment will be enough for the university to in the long run fund all of the scholarship needs uh, moving forward. Wow. Fascinating model. And have you thought about perhaps uh, contributions back from the students afterwards? Or, um, I mean, the, the standard like loan payment repayment, we hear a lot about it recently. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. And, and that's, look, and that's a, an important component. In fact, uh, for our students, we believe in personal responsibility and we uh, have given, uh, given students loan from, from our very early years. And in fact, before you're eligible for a scholarship, you work and we arrange work for our students. Uh, and there are employers that come and hire our students because they want to both support the students and get the value of, of, of their insight as, as they go through the Minerva program. Uh, and you take a loan. And it's only then that you're eligible for the scholarship funds. So, you know, we believe that, um, you know, students need to put in this, uh, the sweat, uh, and, and have skin in the game when it comes to, uh, their own education. So we, we, we stick with that. Having said that, you don't, I mean, $30,000 a year is still 
a lot of money uh, for most of humanity. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're taking out $20,000, every year in loans and graduating with you know, $80,000, dollars $100,000 of debt, because that severely limits where you can uh, actually uh, deploy your talents and, and, uh, and, and pursue the kinds of, uh, of opportunities that can really have impact both on yourself, but more importantly on society. So the key is to provide a modest amount of, of loans that don't preclude students from pursuing uh, a certain opportunities while making sure that people sign up for personal responsibility. That's fascinating. Um, there, there are a couple of movements, including I mean, the on deck movement where Eric Thornbring is constantly trying to say, how do we get um, recent graduates who go and become entrepreneurs and founders and work for startups and other uh, important roles to solve meaningful problems? And I think no one connected to dots that if you have like a, a huge student debt and, you know, you have to start with a certain salary, you have to go to a big okay. firm. And, you know, even though there are so many problems that you could potentially tackle in a startup, we all know how it is to, to, to work in a startup environment and the salaries are Will, will not compensate for that. And actually, if you look at it, what's beneficial for the economy, giving in a little bit early will probably uh, return to be a better investment long-term, which is not a metric that you know we, we, we use right now. Um, so so impressed and you know I could um, hear about this for for a very long time and um, I guess the question here for B is you know we on the cell platform we had about two hundred thousand accredited investors it's a it's a global platform um, this is a recorded talk as well as you know um, how can people in you know the audience people who see this interview um, how can we help how can we support Minerva and how can we ensure that more of this happens and that more young people get this great education and are able to meaningfully contribute to the economy and um, support your work. Well, it's amazing that you ask. It's, uh, it's it's rare actually to be asked about that. Most people care about Minerva and say, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. Good luck. And uh, I'll see you later. Um, but the reality is, is that a movement, especially a reform movement that is so central to society, which is changing the way that education occurs such that students actually can, even if they want to, they oftentimes don't know how to contribute to society, but to think in unconventional ways and, and, and fix serious problems, it all starts with the health of Minerva University. Without that beacon, without that exemplar that allows other universities to follow in its footsteps, none of it matters, right? And so um, anybody can, of course, reach out to me. I'm just ben at minerva.edu in my Minerva uh, chancellor uh, uh, role. Uh, and if they're interested in engaging with uh, students and supporting them and supporting the work that, uh, that we do for them, always happy to have a conversation. Um, on the other side of the house, uh, in the Minerva project, um, we're now working with uh, everybody from the University of Miami uh, in launching a new uh, uh, honors uh, program for them, uh, all the way to uh, uh, Paul Quinn College, which is a historically black college in Texas, and, and launching a brand new program um, in partnership with them, to Asade, which is one of the top business schools in the world in Barcelona, to one of the uh, top federal universities in the United Arab Emirates, where we're doing an entire institutional transformation, to launching new universities in Korea, 
Canada, in Mexico, um, and, and really having the far, uh, far reach there. Uh, and if people are interested in um, uh, in being involved in the Minerva Project, my, my other hat is I am the CEO of the Minerva Project. They can uh, reach out and that's just uh, minervaproject.com is the URL uh, and, and happy to uh, to connect with people on that as well. Yeah. And, and you're also fundraising, right, for the next uh, cohort of, of your students. That's right. So we we uh, every year we dole out a uh, little over eight million dollars in scholarships, uh, which in the grand scheme of higher education is nothing, uh, but in our world is is a significant amount. Um, we're very lucky to be supported by some uh, extraordinarily generous people like uh, Reed Hastings, uh, the founder and CEO of Netflix, by uh, Zhang Yiming, the founder and CEO of ByteDance and TikTok, uh, and, uh, and a number of others. And we're uh, we're always looking for like-minded people who want to um, leave their mark and and really impact the lives of extraordinarily deserving students. Fascinating. Um, and I guess a couple of, of final questions, you know, we'd love to get some of your thoughts on education in general. And, you know, we've seen a lot of industries uh, being completely uh, challenged and reimagined uh, because of the pandemic. And education is certainly one of them with kind of the total remote working and even that campus that you mentioned in um, our, early in our conversation is no longer even happening for the majority of students these days. Um, so a lot of companies have said, is, you know, education university even necessary, right? Like, should you just be doing internships in some of the big firms should you be acquiring skills? I think we definitely have got, um, a little bit more open-minded in terms of different backgrounds and more kind of assessing skills rather than just a degree It's still obviously in academia, you know, your degree is your currency. Um, but how do you think the, the pandemic and everything that, you know, is still happening in the world and um, is shaping higher education and how do you see it uh, going forward? Well, I, I think you're, you're exactly right that we're, we're at a, um, a potentially exciting, but also potentially very dangerous juncture. And, and the, the, the core problem is that because universities have historically done such a bad job at providing students with relevant skills, um, eventually people are just saying, well, you know, the, the sector is delegitimized, let's skip it. But that's akin to seeing, you know, uh, somebody who's uh, mortally uh, ill and, uh, and has some, uh, uh, some disease and you give them some pill and the pill doesn't work and you say, oh, well, medicine doesn't work for you. Um, well, maybe you give them the wrong medicine, <laughs> right? Um, the, so the, this, this kind of knee-jerk response of, well, universities aren't worth it Therefore, let's skip education is extremely dangerous uh, because it's not to say that, you know, I'm not going to make the argument that the university education is doing what it should be doing, but it's you can't equate the current state of education with the concept of actually taking some time to learn formally and be able to apply that learning to real world situations. And, and I think that both from Minerva University and through our partner institutions that are adopting this new approach, there is a redefinition of what education is. And I think the pandemic has lifted that veil, created that emperor has no clothes moment that enables a bunch of institutions to say, no, 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 no. We're not going to be 
uh, okay with the status quo, we are going to try new models. We are going to try new ways. And if they prove successful, they're going to become the dominant ways of, of uh, educating students moving forward. Fascinating. So you still think there is a place for formal higher education. It's just that the formal higher education could be redefined, remanaged and changed uh, the way we deliver it. I think it must be because if, if it isn't, then the the societal cost of going to these institutions, uh, the lack of social mobility that occurs in those institutions where the effectively rich students go to those institutions, get certified, can pursue jobs that they weren't trained for, but at least, you know, filtered uh, poor members of society out of those opportunities. Um, those institutions will delegitimize themselves uh, and they're in the process of doing that. And so if, if we aren't going to provide a reformed version, the entire sector could collapse. And that would be. Um, I think catastrophic for society because then effectively you're going to have uh, a delegitimization of education writ large, of expertise, of any kind of uh, of background. And it's not to say that you have extraordinarily successful people who don't have a formal education now, but imagine what those individuals and the people who've had a formal education, which isn't effective, imagine what they could accomplish if they actually had an effective education, right? So we, we, you don't, you don't want, you have no control. You don't, you don't have a, a multiverse where, you know, we, you follow the same person with a degree and without a degree and, and you can compare and contrast, but it stands to reason that if you are taught, practical tools that you can apply and they lead you to better decision making that you'd be better off than if you were not to have them. Yeah, it's a, it's a good argument. And as you said, it's difficult to do this case control studies. And I guess my final question, because now we're running out of time and I appreciate how busy you are. Um, what is your bold vision for Minerva and for this? I mean, um, reimagining of former a formal higher education to occur um like what is what wh where will you be in in five years will you be in 10 years and is there anyone else who is necessary to do something similar or do something different it'll be complementary to what you guys are doing in order to reach your mission yeah absolutely um i think in five to ten years probably closer to ten than five um the world will establish a consciousness of institutions that are either reformed institutions and therefore signal that they care about their learners and in return care about their impact on society. And those institutions that cling to the current model and therefore signal that they don't frankly care about their learners. And that the world will start to bifurcate, the higher education world will start to bifurcate among those institutions that are going to command the lion's share of attention in, in the uh, uh, among governments, funders, donors, uh, applicants, et cetera, and those that are going to become more and more esoteric and less relevant for society. In order for that to happen, we can't be the only ones. We can't be the only ones that have created a new system of education and say, hey, you're either part of the Minerva movement or not. There actually have to be other people that show up that say, hey, 
you know, Minerva's got one way of approaching it. We've got a different way, right? And have the same kind of science and evidence behind it to demonstrate that they too have different approaches. And ideally, you have a very broad heterogeneity. You don't have a monoculture of education. You have a heteroculture of, of, of education. We try to achieve that just within our own system because every single partner we work with has a very different approach to education using the same scientific principles that we bring to bear. So we try to create a heteroculture just within our own ecosystem, but I believe that if you before the entire sector really shifts, you're going to have to have competing approaches that uh, that systems are will, will be able to choose from, uh, rather than just basically having this binary choice of reform with Minerva or basically stay doing the same thing you've always done. Okay, well, thank you so much. This was um, excellent. Uh, you know, I'm your your huge supporter. Um, and uh, thank you for finding the time. And I'm sure a lot of people found this inspiring. It's great that you're also inviting more people to work in the field. I do think we still need to think about creative business models to do value, but I think education is the most important thing we could do for the younger generations. Um, and that any kind of printing money later down in life, unless you provide with uh, people with this with the skills and the right mindset um, will not prove to be as effective. Thank you, Dina, and really appreciate uh, this conversation and uh, such a fan of what you do. So thanks you so much. Thanks, Dr. Dina, and thank you, Ben, for joining us on Salt Talks. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this Salt Talk or previous Salt Talks, you can access them all on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, SaltTube. As for social media, Twitter is where we're most active, so be sure to follow us at Salt Conference. On behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is Joe Leto signing off for SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.